Second Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be looking at. And as we begin this year, we are taking six weeks to look at major areas of development and development of a healthy, vibrant church in Christ. And last week, Matt took us through a real good explanation of why community is so critically important to the health of a church and why it's so important that we're united and involved with one another. And we actually talked about that and want to encourage you to experience community in one of our fellowship families and one of the small groups. But this is kind of the time of the year where people take stock in their life, probably did this maybe a couple of weeks ago, and they're like, I am going to make some changes, right? And I know that there's people in our midst that made something called a New Year's resolution, right? And you don't have to wave your hand like, oh, that's me, you know, and stand up and, on your chair and tell us what they are. But there's plenty of you that have done that. Now, some of us take this more seriously than others. Like, for instance, one of my kids last year, he, uh, he made a New Year's resolution that I thought was going to greatly affect his life uh, spiritually and otherwise by, by not eating chips for an entire year, okay? And so he, candy, cake, cookies, you know, all that. Uh, I think he goes through a box of cereal a day. That's, that's, that's all fine, but he wasn't going to eat chips. And he did it. I mean, even on New Year's Eve, we were at a little party and there were some chips, and I offered him some just to see. And he's like, no, I think I got like 45 more minutes. No, I'm not going to eat a chip now, you know? <laughs> okay, I'll just like, just check in to see if he wanted a chip. You know? And now he's, he's back into chips. Now, some of you have maybe a little more reasonable New Year's resolution, like I'm going to read a book a year. This year I want to read a book, which, which might be good. And some of you are like, I'm reading a, a book a month, and I've set these kind of goals. And a big one, though, a lot of folks like, you know, that's it. After you just put on your 15 pounds of going through Christmas vacation, you're like, that's it. I'm going to get my body in shape. I'm going to start eating right, and I'm going to start exercising. And, and a lot of people do this. In fact, health clubs are banking on it, and they are packed out. I mean, you see billboards, advertising and stuff, because people think like, this is the year I'm going to get in shape. And, you know, sure enough, uh, Saturday after New Year's, I went to the Y and I was and I, like, man, Saturday morning, where are we, what's going on here? Is there a swim meet or a basketball tournament or something? There's all these cars here. There was no swim meet. There was no basketball tournament. There's all these people that are working out. And I'm like, you know, a lot of them I hadn't seen before. And I'm kind of making my way through the, the locker room trying to find a locker. And there's this guy that's and I couldn't tell if he was coming or going, and he had a little bit of sweat on his forehead, and he was breathing. And, and I was kind of put my stuff in there, and I, and I got a little concerned about him. I said, hey, are, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I, I'm okay. And I, and I was like, well, i got to encourage this guy here. So I'm like, well, listen, you know what? Just showing up is half the battle. And he seemed to be like, yeah. And so he picked up his stuff, and he left. I don't even know if he worked out or not, but he was there greatly encouraged by that statement, like, that's right. Just getting here is half the battle. I'm going to go back home. Where's my couch, right? And, and we're like that. And let me just tell you what's going to happen here. Now, I, I have met several. Uh, in fact, there's a possibility that two of the people that I met this last week here are actually here today. And one of them even yesterday told me, you know, I'm trying to get my body in shape. And I'm like, great. Why don't you come to church? You know, and so if you're doing that, that is wonderful. But you're going to need to stick with it because let me tell you the trend. Yeah, right now the health clubs are packed out. But come February, guess what? They're all back to normal. It's, it's all back to the same few people that show up, and I don't know, you do whatever you do in those health clubs because we just kind of have, man, that is too much work. You know what happens? Life happens. You know, when it comes to the idea of spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices, you might have the idea that, you know what I'm going to do? This is the year I'm really going to grow spiritually. I'll tell you what. 
I am going to read my Bible for at least an hour a day. And I'm going to cap that off with an hour of prayer. This is the year that I am going to fast once a month for 30 days at a time. This is the year that I'm going to read that 16-pound theology because I'm going deep this year. I'm going to practice solitude despite the fact that I have 16 children in my house at any given time and I have two jobs. This is the year. And, and you know what happens? We have these grandiose ideas and guess what? You go with it for, with gusto. And you probably do all right for a week or two and then what happens? Life happens, Right? I mean, all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I got a job. I forgot about that. And you got your family and all these responsibilities. You got your pets and your farm animals and your lawn that needs to be mowed. And you have all these things that start to infiltrate your life. And those ideas of these spiritual disciplines, guess what? They go out the window. And when they go out the window, you know what happens? That monster of guilt. You familiar with that? It just kind of creeps back up on top of you. And let me just tell you, there's millions of Christians that they feel like they're living the pathetic Christian life. They don't want anybody to ask them, like, how are you doing spiritually or you read your Bible or anything like that because you know what? They're just, like, overwhelmed with guilt. And it's kind of a perpetual cycle. And it really, it leads us to kind of this fundamental, foundational question that if we can't answer it, we're going to be in big trouble. And that is, how in the world do we really grow as a Christian? I mean, how do you do it? Well, I'll tell you what. We do not want any single person at fellowship to be confused on that matter. We want you to be absolutely clear and certain how it is that you grow and mature in the faith that God has placed us in. And in order for that to happen, what Paul addresses and what God has him write in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, has to be etched in your mind. It is critically important because it actually highlights in one sentence what the heart of the Christian life is all about. Take a look at it, what he says in chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, he says, you know, I wish that you could bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. What he's kind of saying is, like, listen, what I'm about to do in the rest of this chapter where he starts extolling his virtues because he is contrasting himself with the false teachers that have infiltrated Corinth, he's saying, this kind of sounds a little bit crazy. Bear with me. I know you are. I know you continue to do that, but just keep bearing with me. Because let me tell you, he says in verse 2, I have a huge concern about you. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He's saying, hey, let's take a little time out. This is going to sound a little bit crazy, but let me just tell you what I'm thinking. Let me just tell you how much I care about you. When you came to Christ and you turned from your idols and your self-centered lifestyle and you truly put your trust in Christ, I actually betrothed you to him. Now, betrothed, you're like, whoa, what is that? That sounds like a nice Bible word, but what does it mean? Well, it's, it's far greater than engagement. Both in the Roman society as well as with the Jews, they practiced betrothal. And what that was, was that when a, a man and a woman, where they were going to come together, they came together legally and formally and it was a contract. Gifts were exchanged. It was done in front of witnesses. And it lasted for about one year before they actually came together and actually then were married. So you had this legal one-year betrothal period, and then you had this marriage. And in that time, in the betrothal, the guy was busy getting his house in order and trying to save up money because his wife, you know, you're going to get married. She's going to spend all your money. So you've got to get some, right? And so 
I don't know if that's true for you. And it wasn't always true for me. I didn't have any money when Karina married me, so I was safe there, okay? But what happens is they get ready, and then once they come together, well, then that's when that marriage is consummated, but it all gets started on this foundation of betrothal. What Paul is saying is, listen, I betrothed you to Christ. The time he is coming back for his church, he talks about it in Matthew chapter 25, it is the highlight of Revelation 19, where Christ is coming back for his people, and that is when the wedding marriage ceremony is going to take place. But right now, you are promised to him. You are set apart to him. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This isn't about me, he says. This is all about God. I have betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a, see that verse 2, a pure virgin. That there would be no impurities in you. You are completely set apart to him. You're not wandering off after any false gods or any false teaching, but you are actually set apart purely to him. And then he lays it down. And I mean, like this is like a hammer coming, crashing down. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says, but I tell you what, I'm fearful. I am fearful that just like the serpent deceived Eve, Convincing Eve, like, you know what? God's kind of holding out on you. He knows that when you eat of this fruit of the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but as soon as you do that, you're going to be like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil when, as soon as you eat that fruit. He's holding out on you. Come on. You need to do this. Remember that temptation? And she bought into a lie. And it moved her from time of just being completely devoted to knowing God, the triune living God, like really and she takes it and so does adam and it plunged humanity into god's justice because they sinned they literally missed the mark of god's holiness and paul is saying you know what just like the serpent deceived eve by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to christ it all gets started right here friends your head what you're really thinking Because as soon as your mind is distracted from Christ and the sufficiency of his word and the sufficiency of who Christ is, that's when all of this starts to come unraveled. And he says, I am concerned. In fact, I am deeply concerned that your minds will be led astray from simplicity and purity. Simplicity has the idea of being single-minded and purity, free from any imperfections. Purity of devotion to Christ. I do not want you to be led astray. I want you to experience single-mindedness to Christ. And now, that is it. This is the heart of Christianity. It is experiencing devotion, relationship, fellowship with Christ. That is the Christian message that you and I, by virtue of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can know God personally. We can walk with Christ in this life. We can know the joy of what life is all about because we know the creator and the author of our life and faith, who is Christ. Now, it's interesting. Some people that like to dismiss Genesis 3 or Genesis chapters 1 through 12, that's just a nice story. I just want to remind you that Paul took it literally. Okay? 
And he says, I don't want this to reoccur in you. So how is it that you and I grow in this just pure, single-minded devotion to Christ? How do you do it? Now, what is the whole goal of spirituality? The goal of spirituality and growing in your relationship with Christ, it's not so that you'll be a better leader. It's not so that you'll become self-actualized. That you'll experience everything that you've always wanted to be. That you will be the consummate man or or the, the most important of women. It's also, it's not that you will get everything you want. It's really interesting how we try to take the self-centered twist on our spirituality. Like it's all about me. And I'm going to become the greatest thing. And and so I need to have this great spiritual walk. Really, what is the goal of spirituality? The goal of spirituality is to know and enjoy God deeply. And to obey him from the heart through his spirit. To know God and to follow him, to walk with him. To be so in love with him that he carries you through. So how do you, how do you go about this? Well, let me tell you, first of all, when we talk about spirituality and growing in your relationship with Christ and spiritual practices, spiritually, if you are trusting Christ, it is absolutely certain that you are his. Your spiritual state is one where Christ is completely paid for it all. You are, in one sense, completely fine, perfected because you're united with Christ. But there is this process of sanctification that once you begin this relationship with Christ, that you are growing in it. Now, you can't lose your salvation. Yesterday I was talking with a guy, and he was telling me of this friend of his that believes that he can lose his salvation. He's like, man, I was a little thrown off by it, but he's like, yeah, you do some wrong things, and all of a sudden you're kind of out. And he he said, how do you handle that? What do you tell him? I said, well, I think I'd start with John 3.16. You know that verse? Uh, yeah. Does your friend know it? Yeah. What does it say? For God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Uh, who's, someone say eternal life? And that's what he, he said. He said eternal life. I left it blank for him. I said, when does eternity end? It doesn't. That's right. And that's the kind of life that God gives to his people. It not only speaks of a quantity, never ending, it actually, eternal life speaks of the quality of life. God doesn't give you probationary life, like, we'll see how good you are, but as soon as you mess up, you're out, because salvation is of the Lord. God does it all. He is the one who secured your salvation, has given you the faith, he has drawn you to himself. But let me tell you, you and I can grow in our fellowship with Christ. Our relationship is secure, but our fellowship can grow just like any relationship. If you and I are going to get to know each other, we've got to spend some time with one another. We've got to talk, converse. We've got to share life, do experiences, right? Well, so it is with our life with God. And let me just give you some practices of how you and I can grow by, in our fellowship with Christ and do so by grace that is free from guilt. And there's really, think of it this way. Your life needs fuel, right? Bread, water, things to drink, right? Air. So does your spiritual life. There's things that fuel our fellowship with God. Now, let me give you the first one. I'm going to give you three of them. But the first one is this. It is focusing on Christ as the center of your attitudes and activities. It's focusing on Christ as the center of your attitudes and activities. Now, usually what happens here is, is that when we come to listing our priorities in life, well, let's just see how you guys are doing. What are the priorities of your life? 
And if I said, how many of you think your first priority is God? Like, whoa, yes, that's me. I'm a church. Look, <laughs> my first priority is God, right? We'd say that, right? And our second priority, there might be some discussion here, but a lot of you are going to come through. It's family, right? So we got God first, family, right? And then, and then you know, it's like there'll be a lot of discussion on what number three is. Maybe you could do whatever you want, okay? But let's keep God first, okay? And that is the political correct answer, especially in church settings. It's God first, right? Family, and then, you know, your job or your house or whatever, your dog, yourself. I don't know. You, know, you have all these ideas, right? So let me just ask you, what does it mean to put God first? What does that mean? Does it mean simply putting him first in order? So you like, as soon as you kind of come out of that haze of sleepy, sleep, you know, you're kind of like, right, like, who am I? Where am I? Right? And that, that means immediately, first priority is that you must what? I must, I must spend time with God. Is that, is that what it means? It means if I'm putting God first, that means first in priority of time. And if that is the case, then, well, how much time do I give him if I'm putting him first? You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that does all these, like, little mind games and stuff like that where you're like, how much time is it? Ten minutes or 110 minutes? You know, do you, and then, or does it, when we say putting God first, does that mean a priority of time? Meaning I'm going to give God most of my time each day. But that's all fine and dandy, but what if you have a job? Or what if you have four kids? Or, or what if you have to go to school? Or you, see you know what I'm saying? How do, how do you do that? Does that mean I have to give him like most of my time because he's first? Or does it mean that I have to give him like the priority of quality of time, that I have to give him my very best portion? My employer wants my best portion, you know, and, and I, or my family wants my best portion, and aren't I supposed to get my best everywhere? And, and so what happens is we're kind of in this conundrum. And so this is what happens when we're thinking, like, well, I'm going to give God my, my first priority. Well, what happens is we, we create two boxes in our life. We have a spiritual box, and we have a secular box. In our spiritual box, we're going to put time with God, reading the Bible, prayer, um, maybe hanging out with Christian friends, things like that, going to church. And then everything else goes in the secular box, right? And so we're kind of like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'll have a spiritual box and a secular box. And, and you know how this is. You get so frustrated. And you're like, well, am I supposed to give God the first? And, man, he's getting really shortchanged. And, oh, I feel terrible about this, right? And I, I know that I kind of struggled with this, especially early years as kind of growing in the faith, you know, and wanting to give, keep God first, and yet... I had all these other things. I was supposed to go to school and keep up an active social life. And, oh, yeah, I had a job that was trying to pay for all this. And, whoa, I, I just, uh, I don't want to tell you. I actually, I totally gave up on the idea of putting God first. And I stopped it. It was, it was a nebulous concept. In my head, I could work all these angles where I, it would never happen. And I'll tell you what I did. I stopped putting God first. And I put him in the middle. I put him in the center. It's kind of like this, you know, like a wheel that has a hub and it has all these spokes coming from it. Instead of putting God first, like, oh, I've got to check off the God box so I can get on to the rest of my things in my life, I like, I'm putting him in the center of everything I do. And so, really, I, I see life this way. And I get it because I get it from the New Testament. Christ is at the center in everything I do. Family. Things I'm involved with at church. Relationships. My neighbors. Anything. It could even be when I'm mowing the yard. Seeing God and Christ specifically at the center. 
keeping Christ in the center. Let me give you a text on that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, word or deed, whatever, do it all in the name. Do it all in the name of Jesus, where he's honored and he's at the center. He's the source of your strength. And I want you to try this. If this is a novel concept, this is perhaps the greatest spiritual practice, keeping Christ at the center. Even when you're angry or you're upset about a situation, try this. Try actually just saying, Lord, I want you to be the center of this situation and see how you start changing how you respond. And so that is what we do. The reality of the gospel is that you and I are united with Christ forever. Like Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, says, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Where's Christ? Is he out there? Well, he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, but he actually dwells in your hearts by faith. He is with you. Or the, the great truth of Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives where? Did you? Someone said, in me. That's because that's what the text says. Christ actually resides in his people. It's no, the life that I live in the flesh, I no longer live by what? I I'm not about me. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live by faith. Faith in Christ. I see him at the center. And when we do that, it changes everything. This radically will change your spiritual life if you will see Jesus at the center of all things. When we see God as, or Christ as the top priority, what happens is we check him off like, yeah, I did whatever you think satisfies the God box, and you move on to the secular box. The second thing that's really bad about that is it's, we have a strong tendency to assume that everything in the secular box God really has nothing to do with, right? That's what happens. It actually explains a lot of what we see in modern-day Christianity. And any time you move into compartmentalized Christianity, you are always asking for trouble. It kind of explains why some folks, man, like telling a lie at church, oh, never. But stretching it on the sales call, it's all right. Uh, hanging out with the guys and you tell some sort of joke that's completely inappropriate, like, boy, you'd be shocked if someone did it out in the foyer of the church. Because <gasps> that's in the God box. Think of it this way. Think of Christ at the center. And all the vestiges of the spiritual, secular dichotomy that a lot of people live with, those things will go away when you see Jesus at the center. And you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm not really in the ministry. Let me assure you, you are if you know Christ. You represent him wherever you go. So don't put him in a box. He wants to express his life through your life right where he's planted you. So bloom where you're planted. And how do you do that? You keep Christ at the center. Put him in the middle of your life where he belongs. Let me give you another element of fuel for your fellowship with God. Not only do you want to keep Christ at the center, but you have to have regular times of just reading and internalizing God's word. There has to be times in your life where you're actually digesting scripture. And you're like, well, where do you get that idea? Well, Jesus makes it explicitly clear. Like in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you want to live? Uh, yeah. 
than you need to eat. Sometimes when I'm checking in at the hospital with folks, that is sometimes one of their concerns. They're not eating. You stop eating and your body just starts breaking down. You need food. You need food spiritually as well. That food is the word. And when you're keeping Christ as the center, why, there's all of a sudden there's a desire to be in his word. It's not a guilt trip, it's a desire. Now let me just tell you, it's going to vary from person to person, and in your own life it'll vary from day to day, but you need to have some pattern of getting God's word in your life, whether it's reading a verse, or studying a passage, or reading a book. You can't legislate it, it can't be legalized, but you've got to have some time where you're getting God's word into your life. And Peter makes this explicitly clear in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, he says, like newborn babies... Long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you're going to grow like a baby, you've got to have the pure milk of the word. And or Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God has given in his word everything that you need to grow in godliness, to fuel your relationship. All scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you feel like you're somewhat ill-prepared for life? Then perhaps you need more food. And let me just give you a simple plan to internalize God's word. You read it, research. When you come to something you don't know, like, oh, whatever, and keep moving. No. There's the, the Internet provides great tools. Just go to Bible.org. It'll answer pretty much every question you have. Get a good study Bible. Ask someone in your fellowship family. Ask someone at the church. But don't just like, oh, I don't know. Don't live in ignorance when information and truth is available. So you read, you research, you reflect upon it. Like, hmm, what does, what does that really mean? What is God intending there? And how do I respond to this? So look for the natural, normal sense. Don't make these convoluted things or I feel like this means to me. No, what does the Bible say and how do I respond? Identify the meaning and context. What does it really mean? Lord, how do I respond to this? But you need to have regular times in God's word. For some of you, that means five minutes. And others, it kind of looks like an hour a day. A couple weeks ago, I talked with a young guy. He, hasn't, he said, I spent about an hour and a half in prayer and reading the scriptures. Awesome. But you can't like, well, then everybody has to do it. No. You just have to find some time and you make it work for you, whether it's in the morning, in the afternoon, at lunchtime, at night, before you go to bed, whenever, where you're getting into God's word and God's word is getting to you. And let me just another aspect of fuel for your fellowship. You have to be developing patterns of prayer, confession, and praise. This is the natural, normal Christian life where we are talking to God. That's what prayer is. It's expressing your dreams, your hopes, your hurts, your desires, your pains. It is speaking to God. Paul writes in Colossians 4.2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Literally, make talking with God a pattern of your life. You see, before you and I came to Christ, we were like, did it all on our own. We never talked to God because why? We didn't believe. But once you and I have come to know Christ, we now have access to the Father at any time, but our selfish, fleshly tendencies, you know what? We still don't really want to talk to God very often. We still like to go it alone, and that's where we get into trouble. And so 
the spiritual practice of learning to engage God, speak to him as you go through the day is the pattern of devoting yourself to prayer. Now, some of you, there are people in this room that I know that spend several hours a day praying. But don't feel like you have to spend several hours a day. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, he never spent more than 10 minutes at a time in prayer. It can even be five. Just develop some patterns. Maybe before your appointment or your meeting or before you do something, maybe just ask God for 30 seconds just to speak with him. But develop patterns of prayer. And when God brings to your mind that you've sinned, you've missed the mark, and he's going to do that, you feel conviction, you feel bad, and you feel heavy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. What do you do? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through prayer, you agree with God. This is an offense to your holiness. Lord, thank you for the grace of Jesus and experience his forgiveness. Now, I've told you about the fuel for fellowship, your fellowship with God. So you're, some of you are like, yeah, do I really need to? Will it all come apart if I don't? And let me tell you, answer that question. No, it won't. You don't want to keep Christ at the center, and you don't want to read your Bible. You don't want to pray. You don't really desire the things that fuel for fellowship. It's like, yeah, you can go without food, but it does have an effect on you after a while. Try it. And God says, I want you to experience me. That's what it, keeping Christ at the center in his word and prayer, that's what it does. It keeps the focus on Christ. Now, these are the key elements of fellowship, but let me tell you, there's all sorts of tools out there to really grow. Uh, there are tools for spiritual growth. And there, I, I just started listing them. In fact, you find them in your study guide. I just started writing down different tools that I was aware of, most of which I've tried, many of which I, I still do from time to time. But there's memorizing scripture. There's journaling. Personal retreats where it's just you and God. And you're kind of evaluating your life. Personal mission statement, like having it and saying it, focusing on what that means, writing or typing your prayers, reading through the entire Bible in a year. Uh, reading through the New Testament like once a month, uh, Psalms and Proverbs each day, memorizing verses, passages, even some smaller books of the Bible. Uh, you could also pray through these passages. You could read systematic theologies or church histories or, or some biographies of some great saint. Uh, you, can, you can walk and run and pray, or you can pray with your spouse or pray with your kids, or there's solitude or there's reading books on any sort of subject. These are all just different spiritual tools, spiritual disciplines that you could put in your life. You can read the Bible to your children. You can also pray with them. You can have family devotions, journaling, private acts of servanthood. You can play or listen to or create songs. And you know what? All of those are great. And just by reading them, they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, I'd like to do that. Oh, I'd like to do that as well. And this is what happens. We begin to think like we've got to do all of these things, right? Because after all, we want to experience God in his fullness. Let me just tell you something that's going to be extremely freeing. Don't make tools rules. Don't make tools rules. We grow by grace, not by guilt. Spiritual practices are simply meant for us to experience God. They are not earning God's favor. They're not some sort of like, well, I'm going to do these things to temporarily relieve guilt in my life. No. It's like this. There are tools, and tools have specific tasks. So, for instance, most of you have a hammer. 
And hammers are really good if you want to nail, put, take a nail and drive it into a board. But hammers are not so good when you want to wash windows, right? All right? Because it's the wrong tool. And so God has given an amazing number of tools. This isn't by any means exhaustive. I know people that draw or create things, artistic types, and they do it in a sense of experiencing devotion to God. But you've got to pick the right tool for the right time. Now, you know what's going to happen is as you spend time with God, your appetite's going to grow, just like it grows when you eat food. Or there's people that have come out of pornography, and they have said that, it's like they fed this animal of illicit sex, and the more they did, it just drove them. It's because it's whatever you're feeding, whatever desire you're feeding, is going to have a tendency to grow for the evil or for good. And so you feed your life truth. But you pick the tools. See, spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, they're like wires. But there are wires that connect us to the power of the presence of Christ. The wire isn't so as important as it is Christ. To know him, to trust him, to experience his love, his forgiveness. And so let me just give you a great text on spiritual growth. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Literally, mind the depths. Bring it to completion, the salvation you have in Christ. But then he says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Whoa, wait a second. Working it out, I'm fully involved and engaged in this process of growing in my salvation, minding its depths. But then the very next sentence, verse 13, says that it's God who is at work in your will to bring this out, to will and to work his purposes. Now, what do you do when you don't feel like spending time with God? I was talking with one of my kids about this last week. What do you, you know, like, oh, man, I don't really want to spend time with God. I don't want to pray. I don't want to read. I don't want to do anything. Do you just like, you know what I need to do? I just need to fuck up and do it. I need to pull myself up, get it going, and you got this idea of hard discipline. No, don't just play, pray, Lord, help me to do it. Do this. Pray, God, give me the desire to do it. He says in Philippians 2.13 that he will give you what? The desire, the will. To, he's going to do it. And so what happens is when we're confronted with our hard-heartedness, don't just like, Lord, help me to do it. Pray this way. God, give me the desire to do the things that you desire me to do. It is far more organic. It is spiritual life when we're driven by holy desires. Like it says in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God, help me desire you. When we are driven by our desires, that is when we are experiencing growth and fellowship. And so, you know, if we're just like trying to do it on our own with some sort of macho I can just make this happen. God hasn't really changed us all that much. He intends to change us from the inside out. God, change my heart on this issue. I see where I'm about me, and I don't want this. Or I've, there's hard-heartedness issues in my life. Lord, shape and change my desire. And really, you see that this is what God wants. 
He wants our heart to match his. You even see Jesus. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Father, align my desire and my heart with your purposes. Because it wasn't a fear of some sort of physical death, as gruesome as that was going to be. It was the weight of sin that he would bear in his body on the cross. That was excruciating. So he came to the point, Lord, I want what you want. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And so why is it, though, that when we hear about these different tools, like I told, just kind of read this huge litany, this big list, why is it that we, we feel like we want to take those tools and turn them into rules? I'll give you two reasons. One, first, it's our natural tendency. It's our natural tendency to project our personal experiences onto everyone. And the second is that we oftentimes confuse what is descriptive in the Bible and make it prescriptive. We see things that work for us, and we're like, man, if it worked for me, this idea of fasting has been so good and powerful in my life, everyone should do it, right? And then what happens is like, you're not fasting like I am? Oh, these pathetic, weak Christians, right? You don't say that, but you're thinking it, right? Or you see like, wow, look at David is up before the sun, Paul singing hymns with Silas at midnight, Daniel's playing three times a day, and I've got to do all these things. In actuality, they're tools, not rules. Let me just give you some helpful general guidelines that have helped me develop a useful toolbox to determine what tools to use and when. First of all, have an awareness and exposure of the many tools there are for spiritual growth. Like, try them all. Give them a shot, just so you know what they're about, how God uses them. Second of all, utilize what God is blessing. So, for instance, you try something. If, it's, if you're really growing, you're experiencing intimacy with Christ, you're learning, you find joy in the Lord because of this, well, keep doing it. But if it feels like a straitjacket and you've been doing it for two weeks, move on to another tool and set it aside for another time. And then also, finally, just, just make honest assessments. You know, what is, what is it that you sense through the Spirit that your soul needs right now? And maybe you want to talk with someone else and help, hey, I'm really struggling with this, or I sense I want to grow, or I'm lacking peace, or I need rest, or, and let God shape you. But you want to know yourself. Now, some people that thrive on routine, they're going to have patterns, and it's going to be rather consistent. That's great. But some of us are varied, and we like change. And I want you to know, that's okay too. Never make tools rules. Simply fuel your life with relationship with Christ and use these tools to help you grow in intimacy with him. But like Paul said, see that here in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, don't be led astray from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And friends, at Fellowship, we want you to experience the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We want you to grow in maturity. In fact, you found in your, in your bulletin, there is just a simple, on one piece of paper, explanation of how do you truly dis- grow and develop maturity in Christ. I just want you to take a look at, could you this week read through this? For some of you, you're like, yeah, I get this, and this is how I'm living. For others of you, this is going to radically revolutionize your understanding of what it means to truly know Christ and his purposes in your life. But spiritual depth is cultivated through a sincere devotion to Christ. And today, I've asked uh, Ricky Yarbrough if she would come and just take a couple minutes to just share with us how she's grown 
in her relationship with Christ. Ricky, I've been very impressed with her walk with God. She is actually uh, coming on board as our women's director, and we are so thankful to have you. And I've got a mic here, and I thought we'd just give you a couple minutes. If you could just share with us. So, Ricky? Um, Colossians 3.16 says, um, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And I just wanted to share why God's word um, is a treasure like that to me. Fifteen years ago, uh, Jeremy and I were just married, and we were part of a small group Bible study. And we were studying through Ephesians, and we came uh, one night, we uh, were talking about salvation. And I was kind of wanting to move this along. This seemed kind of like milk. Let's get into some deep stuff. And, um, and the, Bible, the Bible teacher started um, talking about certain things about salvation, and I had a real problem with it. It, it didn't seem right. And so I began spouting off why he was wrong. In, um, in the Bible study and telling him everything that I, um, that I thought and he stopped me in the middle of it and um, he said, back up in scripture what you're saying. Where are you getting all this from? And I kept telling him what I thought and he said, I want you to tell me the scriptures that you're getting this from. Well, I left Bible study that night in a prideful fit and I, um, we weren't going to meet for two more weeks, and I determined I was going to get in the Word, and I did that night. And I was going to find all, a whole list of Scripture to prove him wrong. In two weeks, I was going to come back and do that, and that was my aim. Um, God had something different for that time. I immersed myself in Scripture those two weeks, and um, the Holy Spirit just opened my eyes, and it was a um, sweet and a hard, humbling work that he did in my heart. Um, and showing me that, showing me a true picture of who he is, of who I am, and that I truly did need rescuing and what salvation was all about. And um, I never, I never seen it that way. And everything came to light in His Word, and that is when my love for God's Word began. Um, it brought things that were in darkness to light, and that is what it has done ever since. My heart burns when I read His Word and when I hear it. Because God is shedding light on these things um, that has been very true. This last year, if, um, if I could show you just what was happening on the inside of my heart, um, there have been several circumstances that had taken place uh, that really just made Jeremy aware, Jeremy and I both aware of. Um, the world that we were bringing our kids up into. And uh, there was also several friends of ours that were going through some of the most unthinkable things in their family. Um, the things that they always saw as stable were crumbling. And my response to that was a growing and a deep fear. Um, Jeremy and I just kind of linked arms and looked into the future and went, how do we keep that and that and that from happening to us and from happening to our family. Um, I remember there was one evening this last year we were in small group and Matt had asked our group, he said, let's list the top ten fears that you have of parenting or marriage or life. And I remember just not being able to breathe during that time going, there is no way I'm voicing what I'm thinking on the inside and just listening to what everybody else shared. Um, there was one evening, though, this last year, and the fear was so great. 
every morning it was like waking up going, what am I supposed to do with this? I guess I'm just supposed to be fearful every day. And the fear was so great, and I had just lashed out at our kids, and um, I was in the kitchen and um, feeling that guilt and not knowing what to do. And I got a text from a friend who was totally clueless because I hadn't shared, um, totally clueless what was going on in my heart, but she said, just thinking of you and praying Ephesians 6.12, which says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And I knew in that moment I had been fighting the wrong battle with the wrong weapons. And don't get me wrong, I love God's Word and I love being a student of God's Word But I am deceived, just like Eve, if I think that by default, my flesh is going to choose what he wants. And I'm going to be able to see my world um, through fleshly eyes in the right way. And I'm not going to muster up enough goodness in me in order to be able to fight Satan. If Christ himself went against Satan with the word alone, then what am I to think that in my flesh that I'm going to do any better than that? Um, There's... Right before Jesus' arrest, when Jesus is praying for the disciples, he says, and that's also for us too, which he says later in that prayer, but he says, I have given them your word. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this is it. This is what we have. He has not taken us out of the world. We are here, and this is what we're living by, and it's everything. So this last year, if you could put a big banner over my life, it would be fearful. My um, resolution going into this next year, going into the rest of my life, is fearless, and not because I can do it on my own, because my flesh has shown me that I can't, and we know that, but only by his word, and only by him. I know that I just can't try to fit him into my every single day. That doesn't work, and you know that. Um, There's a time when Christ was teaching, and the things that he was saying was very difficult And he had great followers, a great crowd around him, and followers that had been following him everywhere. And what he was teaching was extremely controversial, and they didn't like what he said. The disciples didn't like what he was saying. And people started leaving then. And he turns to his disciples and he says, Are you going to do the same? And it's Peter who says, To whom are we going to go to? Your words are eternal life. And unless I look at God's word that way, then I will easily be deceived and I will easily walk away. This is my lifeline. I don't want fluff in my life. I want him. And I don't want to just insert a bunch of stuff in my life to cover up fears and to cover up sin. I want his word to shed light on it. So my verse, and, um, and maybe this can be your verse too, but the past couple of weeks I've been reading it, and this is my prayer. It's in Deuteronomy 13.4. It says, I started out with Ricky. 
You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. So that's my prayer and um, prayer for all of us. Thank you so much, Ricky. All right. Why don't we just take a minute to pray? Lord, thank you so much for the joy it is for us to be able to stop and consider our true relationship and fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that no one would be led astray from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. God, only you can do this. Would you protect us? Would you give us a hunger and thirst for you, a desire to know you? And may our lives reflect your presence in us. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.